All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We are continuing our series through the five thresholds. And um, if you're just joining us or maybe it's your first time here with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Maybe it's something where you've come off and on the past few weeks. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, maybe you've been here every week. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. I don't know if you could sense a, a theme here, but we're really excited to be able to continue through this series. And before we unpack where we're going to go into our service and our sermon today, um, I just wanted to, to ask a question that um, some of us, when it comes to um, going to a restaurant, so think about a restaurant uh, that you like to go to, there are two types of people that I, I think, um, they may be different, but two types of people who some people get the same thing at the restaurant every single time because that's why they went to that restaurant. Um, and then others say, I want to try you know, as many different options as possible. So what I want to do is I want to do a quick poll um, here in person. And that also goes for those of you watching. So uh, Jim and Barbara and Art, I want to hear what you all have to say about this as well. And the question is, are you the type of person that gets the same thing every time at a restaurant? Or are you the type of person who likes to try new things? So if you like to have the same thing every time, show you, raise your hands. Okay, wonderful. Uh, if you like to try new things every time you go to a restaurant, try, uh, raise your hand. <laughs> wonderful. Um, so that was pretty, pretty even. Uh, I'm someone who likes to go to the same thing or get the same thing every time. Again, that's why I went to that place. So um, Jamba Juice, only ever gotten a mango a go-go because I'm like, it works. And why would I why fix it if it's not broken, right? So I get the same thing. Um, but here's, here's why I ask. This past week, we had the opportunity to go uh, to uh, the, the Giants playing the Padres uh, here at Petco Park. It, to be clear, it was a Thursday day. The girls uh, go to, into school on Wednesday and Friday, so we didn't take them out of school. But we went to the game, um, and it's one of those where there's lots of you know, good food options. But once they narrowed it down that all they really wanted was Dippin' Dots, uh, there were only like three choices, right? And so there was two choices of lemonade, pink or yellow, and then there was like four, I think, choices of uh, different Dippin' Dots. And so they got those, and they are delicious, and Steph and I had um, the... Uh, I don't know, some delicious tacos and, and uh, tri-tip steak sandwich. I'm getting distracted and I'm not focusing. So, um, but here's, here's, here's where this comes into play, is that if you're the kind of person that goes to a place and you like to get the same thing every time, but you go to a new place, sometimes the, the amount of choices can determine how satisfied we are with our decisions. It's this idea called overchoice. And the idea of overchoice says that when we have a lot of options, that when we finally make it, one, it'll take us a longer time to make a decision, and two, we'll always usually have this concept of, I wonder if I made the right decision. So an example is, is if you go to um, the Cheesecake Factory, they have a lot of good food, uh, a lot of good cheesecakes, their menu is like a small novel, right? Like it's like really thick and there's lots of pages and they actually had to like do like binding to it like because it has that much, like a spiral bound um, uh, menu. And there's a lot of options. By the time you get to the last option, you kind of forgot what was on the first page and so you have to just evaluate what are you gonna get. Now, good food, you can find something you like there and that's great. In contrast, if you go to In-N-Out, you only got a couple choices there, right? Hamburger, cheeseburger, double-double. Fries, and then you can decide to drink. So there's not a lot of options. So here's where this idea of overchoice comes, is that overchoice would, would tend to say that if you're someone that you go to Cheesecake Factory, you don't know what you want, 
you're more likely to be dissatisfied with your choice. And that's not even including all the cheesecake options, right? Like, that's just the meals. You're more likely to be dissatisfied with choice when you have a lot of things from which you could decide than you are if you've only got three options. Because if you only got three options, you're more likely to be satisfied with your choice because you're not wondering what if. This also plays itself out when you're watching, deciding what show you want to watch if you have a streaming service like Netflix or Amazon Prime. And there's so many options that you don't even know what you're going to watch. And the show that you spend the most time watching is the menu of what you're going to choose to watch. Because there's this idea of overchoice. You watch a movie and think, well, what if, I, what if I missed out on a better movie? Or whatever it is. Here's why I'm, we're, we're opening this up today. Because... The girls were satisfied with their dipping Dots, because how could you not be? But they only had a couple choices, and they were happy with them. I, Steph and I were really happy with what we had, because in that menu, there are only a couple options. But when we recognize that there are so many choices around us, we can be in a state of being undecided. And because we're at the precipice of the threshold of not knowing which decision to make, part of that comes because we're afraid of what if we make the wrong one. And what if what we decide ends up leaving us unsatisfied or dissatisfied? Now today, what we're going to talk about is how there are many ideas of what people can believe, different ideas of faith and backgrounds. But when we know that there's only one way, one truth, one life, one Lord, one God, his name is Jesus. But because there are so many options around our culture of what to believe, if you should believe, all those different things, it can leave many people who've sought Jesus, who seek after him, who want to know him at the threshold of deciding whether they're going to be undecided and stay in that place because for fear of what it might be like if they choose, rather than becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. So this is, this again, this concept of the series comes from this book um, of, called I Once Was Lost, um, Ivy Press, they've been, InterVarsity Press, they've been really great with us uh, working through it, so we want to give them credit. Um, and Don Everts, Doug Shop are the authors there. Really encourage you to check that out if this content has been intriguing to you. Um, and if it hasn't been, just don't tell me. And so, um, but with the threshold five, which we're talking about today, is going from being undecided, helping our friends, those we know and love, to go from being undecided to being followers of Jesus. Because as we've said many times throughout this series, our heart behind this series is that those we know and love most would know and love Christ. And we would walk through them one threshold at a time. Will you pray with me as we enter into this time in God's word? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each person who is uh, here with us, whether here is in person, whether here is online live, or whether here is listening to the podcast later. I thank you that each person who hears my voice is uh, created and formed and loved by you, God, that it's someone that Jesus died for, that it's someone that the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer to you. So, Father, I pray that um, we would receive what you have for us. I pray that as we dive into it, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, wherever we are on this journey and wherever those we love are on their journeys, help us to know how to come alongside them and point them to you so that those we know and love most would know and love Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 as we go through the first 10 verses and listen to the story of Zacchaeus. Now, as you're turning there, um, 
I want to just give a quick uh, review of where we are in this series. So there's five thresholds that this auth- these authors interviewed people. How did you come from being apathetic to Christ all the way to being a fully devoted follower? The stories may not have all been the same, but there are some consistent themes. One, the first threshold is they had to get to a place of trusting a Christian. Two, they came to a place of being curious about God. Three, they came to a place of being open to change that he might change in our lives. Four, that they went to becoming someone who are genuinely seeking Christ. And then what we're talking about today is people who are entering into the kingdom and become followers of Jesus. And so as we dive into this passage, what I've been doing the past few weeks is I'll take, um, I'll have a point, read a couple of verses, have another point, read a couple of verses, and go that way. Today, what I want us to do is just to read the whole story of Zacchaeus and See how we can maybe find ourselves in his journey. And then we'll kind of pull out some points afterwards. But uh, we only have, you know, we don't have as many lists as we often do. Uh, We're going to just go into the story and see what God has to show us through this time. So we'll start in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now there are several just concepts I want to pull out, but it's not listed. We're just going to kind of look at the scripture together. And one of the first things that I think is important for all of us to acknowledge is that if we listen to the story or look at the story of Zacchaeus, that there are times and there are ways in which we can find ourselves resonating with him. That we can maybe see ourselves in his journey. And I'll list a couple and maybe they'll, they'll resonate with you and maybe others will. But the first thing that we see here is that we're recognizing here that he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So he was someone that in this culture was an outcast. He was an outcast in his, cult, in his culture, in his day and age. Let's unpack what a tax collector meant in this time. That because the Roman Empire had conquered and subjugated all these different nations, what ends up happening would be that they would... Um, conscript or they would call people from that nation or from that people group to be in charge of collecting taxes to make sure that those taxes from the people group would get to Rome. So there were people that were within their own people group that would be in charge of saying, okay, whatever the amount of money is, I need to make sure that that money gets to Rome and I'm hired to ensure that that takes place. Now, this is not something where these tax collectors would just do so, saying, hey, you better pay. It's like they would have the might of the Roman military so that they would come to a place, and if anyone pushed back or fought back, they would have to deal with Rome. Now, that in of itself might cause frustration amongst the people, that one of their own was working for their conquerors. 
But what the chief tax collectors, or excuse me, any tax collector would do is that they would then recognize whatever the amount is that they were required to pay, they could bump that amount up to say whatever number they wanted. They would make sure that Rome got what Rome wanted, but then they would get anything above and beyond that. So here's this double whammy of this idea, this person who would be from your own people group, working for Rome, and then cheating you out of more money so that they could become rich, so that your conquerors could become rich, and so that you could stay subjugated and poor. This is an outcast in the society. Now, it talks about two things. He was a tax collector. In fact, it said he was the chief tax collector in the same way that um, that word chief tax collector, it's the same way that we get the word of arch, like an arch nemesis. So like as a Giants fan, speaking to many Padres fans, like we could be a nemesis towards one another, but the arch nemesis is the Dodgers. Am I right? Am I right? So um, off topic. So it's this idea of who's the arch nemesis. Well, instead, he was the arch tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. If, if all the other tax collectors were paying up the stream, he was the one at the top of the pyramid before it went to Rome. So he was getting more money on top of everybody else. And so he was an outcast because he was rich. He was an outcast because he was a tax collector. But I would posit that there might be another reason that maybe before all of these reasons of why he became a tax collector, there's another reason that the text talks about that perhaps speaks to how he may have felt like an outcast before any of that took place. And it talks about how in verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. As someone who's been known to be vertically challenged, um, it's one of those where you look at that and imagine growing up always hearing jokes about how you're short. Imagine the very people that are supposed to be your people are making fun of you for your height or making fun of you for something else that you may not be able to control, and then you have the opportunity to potentially lord power over them, that you might have the opportunity to then show them that you are in charge. And before, this is obviously before Napoleon, but the idea of like that, that Napoleon complex, if I might be short in stature, but I'm going to try to live it up and, 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 and um, impose power upon you. Is it possible that the reason he felt comfortable subjugating his people is because they'd already treated him so poorly as an outcast? Is it possible that as someone who was already an outcast in society, if you're going to be an outcast in his mindset, why not be a wealthy one and work for Rome? Is it possible that Jesus came and he sees how we may feel like we are outcasts in different areas in our lives? We don't have everything that everyone else has. We don't have the career or the role or the status or the possessions that everyone else has. That maybe we try to find our identity in, in other different things. And whenever we try to find our identity in anything other than Jesus, we will be found wanting. And so Jesus shows us in this story that even the one who is the most outcast in a society can be welcomed in to God's kingdom and into his family. So one way we might find ourselves in his story is when we feel like outcasts and comparing ourselves to others, that Jesus doesn't look at that to give us our identity and our value. The second thing I alluded to just a moment ago is that he was wealthy. He had everything financially that he could have wanted. And maybe like some of us, 
or like those we know and love. Maybe we pursue something, in his case, finances, to the point where we think, if I just had more money, I would be happy. But sometimes we pursue something so much that even when we've received it and we have it by all intents and purposes, we would, should be satisfied if that were to satisfy us. We look and we realize something's still missing. I thought that in his case, he thinks that maybe his value would come from how much money he has, but he realizes that his value can't come from that because no matter how much he has, he's never happy. Maybe for some of us, we find ourselves pursuing, maybe it's finances, maybe it's not, but we pursue something so wholeheartedly that at the end of ourselves, we realize I could have it all and still feel like I have nothing of value, nothing that would last for eternity. So maybe we see ourselves in Zacchaeus' story that way. Maybe those don't fit you, but maybe you're someone that, like the blind man on the road that called Jesus out for healing, you are someone who's seeking healing, and you come to Jesus that way. Maybe you're someone who, like the dad who knows his daughter is dying, sends, or sends for Jesus and is coming to him on behalf of his kid. Maybe it's someone who is, you're just walking along and you just don't know, and you've been treated poorly for whatever reason your whole life. And you're hoping, you're seeking out where you can get love and hope and redemption. And you pursue Jesus. The second thing that we see here is that we recognize that, you know, here he ran ahead and, and he was short. And if you were someone who was shorter when it comes to like a school photo, like what do they do? They put you in the front row, right? Like you end up going to the front and they take a picture. Well, people wouldn't let him in. Why? Because they didn't like him. They boxed him out. They kept him back. So they couldn't see. So he runs up and risks um, being mocked already, which he already has been, risks being subjugated by going up and climbing a sycamore tree in order to get a better look of Jesus. And what he sees here in verse 5, when Zacchaeus, or when Jesus says to him, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. In our culture, inviting yourself over to someone's house is not generally looked upon favorably. Like just showing up, and if I were just to go to your house, or, well, go to your house, but if I were to go and come and talk to you, like, hey, I'm coming over for later, I like filet mignon. That would just be like a little weird, right? Like we wouldn't like that. Um, and so in that context, it's very different. In that context, hospitality was so valued and was an honor to have guests into your house. So for Zacchaeus, an outcast who was willing to be risking everything to go and see Jesus, for Jesus to look at him, not to look over him like so many had, not to look down on him like so many had, but to look to him and say, I'm going to your house tonight. Jesus was providing Zacchaeus with a great honor by saying, I'm going to spend time with you. Out of all these people in the crowd, Zacchaeus, I'm seeking you out so we could spend time together today. Why? Well, because Jesus, or Zacchaeus was at this point where he was seeking Jesus. Not a meandering, wandering through the store, maybe looking for something. He was seeking Christ. And he says, I'm going to climb up and see who Jesus is. Zacchaeus would have been well aware that in Luke chapter 15, Jesus was sitting at a dinner with sinners and with specifically tax collectors, talking about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. Zacchaeus may have even been aware of Luke 17, in which Jesus compares a Pharisee who would have been elevated in the society, the, the, the highest of highs, a religious scribe, a religious leader, 
And in this parable, Jesus compares the religious scribe to the tax collector. And the religious scribe, the Pharisee, says, Dear God, I thank you so much that I'm not like this tax collector, but that I fast two times a day and that I give and, and I thank you that I am better than him. And the tax collector just prays, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus, in that comparing and contrasting, says it's the tax collector who was made right before God through that time. See, the tax collectors were ones that Jesus had given value to and acknowledged. And so Zacchaeus was curious to the point of truly seeking him out. So even in verse 7, when he says, they all began to mutter, it's Jesus was willing to acknowledge, hey, I don't care about what other people think because I came to seek and save that which is lost. And Zacchaeus, you're lost, but I'm going to find you, and we're going to have a meal together today. And Zacchaeus, as the third threshold talked about, was open to change because we see the contrast, if you are with us two weeks ago, between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. Two weeks ago, we discussed how the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He's like, oh, I've done all that. So then Jesus says, okay, well, then go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, then follow me. The rich young ruler, when, given, when asking for what to do and given a direct command from our Lord, walks away sad because he was wealthy. We contrast that story, which is in Luke 18, to Zacchaeus in our passage today, who, when connecting with Jesus, when having an encounter with Jesus, when finding hope and value in Jesus, Jesus doesn't say anything about giving to the poor. The, Zacchaeus on his own just says, Lord, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of any money, then I will give them four times as much. Now, Zacchaeus, as a, as a Jewish man, knew the Torah, or the first five books. It's Mosaic Law. And in there, it talks about how charging over and above or creating debt within your culture or within your people group was a sin. And if you were to have wronged somebody in the Torah, it talked about how you needed to be able to pay back 100% plus a 20% extra. So it was 1.2 times the amount that was owed. But Zacchaeus in his heart says, I'm going to give four times as much. I have so much that I've cheated out of people that I realize my identity and my hope cannot be found in my finances. So I'm going to give that away and then half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. Jesus says salvation has come to this house. For this man is a son of Abraham. In other words, as my previous pastor at my old church, my previous church would say, he says, greed gives way to generosity at the point of salvation. That the hoarding and the holding back of time, talents, treasures, when we see what Jesus has done for us, and that's not just a head knowledge, but that permeates and marinates into our hearts, we want to give back of our time, talents, treasures. We want to give back to God because he's given us so much that we've talked about before, that we cannot outgive God, but he loves it when we try. And we've talked about before, or at least in this section, it talks about how greed gives way to generosity at the point of salvation. Does that mean that every single person needs to 
follow what Zacchaeus said. No, Jesus knows what our idols is. He knows what mine is. He knows what yours are. And so he'll call us to give up that which we use him to pursue. Because if we pursue something else and ask God to bless it, then that becomes our idols. But instead, if we pursue him and we seek him first in all his righteousness, then he will give other things to us, as Matthew 6, 33 talks about. So we're sitting here. Zacchaeus has this life-changing moment. Generosity is just overflowing out of him, out of recognizing that Jesus gave him something far more valuable than any amount of money he could have. He gave him hope and a purpose, acceptance, love, and value. And then Jesus' words here in verse 9 are important. Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And I want to land on that phrase, son of Abraham, just for a moment. Because a son of Abraham would initially mean someone who was Jewish, who came from a Jewish background. And so the people in the crowd would know this already. Like we know that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. We know that he's Jewish. That's why we're mad at him because he's a tax collector taxing his own people to pay his conquerors. So they knew that already. So why does Jesus say this? Is it simply to give a truth that everyone knew? Or is it possible that he's pointing us to the truth that Paul highlights in Romans 4, the idea that anyone who has faith is a son or daughter of Abraham, that it's not a genealogical or, or, or a national becoming a son or daughter of Abraham that he's talking about here. It's a faith relational type of thing that happens, that anyone who has faith in Jesus is now a son or daughter of Abraham, a son or daughter of he who has become the father of many nations. And then lastly, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Recently, uh, last night, Shailen and I went on a walk um, to walk our dog, and um, those moments are so great when you just get to, you know, talk with your kids on a walk, and I can just, you know, ask questions, like, you know, just, just to be able to spend time with her. And I don't know how we got on the topic, but she shared the story um, about how when we lived at Poway, um, she was playing hide-and-seek with uh, Steph's parents, so Pop and Grammy, and then with Elise. And so um, she was sharing about how she, Pop, so Steph's dad, was counting in the room, and Shaylin hides, and, you know, Pop is able to find everybody else, and after, like, in Shaylin's mind, like, which, when you're a kid, everything seems much longer. So I don't know how long it actually was. Uh, but in her mind, like, 30 minutes go by, and she talks about how, you know, Pop is like, Pop and Grammy are like, you know, Shaylin, go ahead and come out, because we're actually kind of worried about, like, where you are right now. Um, which, by the way, parents, we all know, that's a trick that you can just use if you're done playing, right? And I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but I'm saying we could be like, oh, yeah, we're really worried. Um, but here's the thing. Do you want to know where she hid? She hid underneath the bed in the room Pop was counting in. In other words, Pop's counting here, and she very quietly sneaks under the bed, hides there. And if you're the seeker, the last thing you're going to expect is to the person who's hiding to be in the room where you were counting. And so they go and they look everywhere, can't find her. And she, you know, when they say come out, there she was in the same room. She'd been hiding there the whole time. In other words, sometimes the one you seek and you search everywhere for has been right there with you the whole time. 
that as we seek Jesus, as we're in this fourth threshold, crossing into the fifth of deciding if we're going to seek Jesus, we realize the truth of what Jesus says here in verse 10. He says, the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. In other words, the more we seek him, we realize that he came to seek us. Though we thought we were the seeker, we realize that through his love and his grace that we become the sought after. And that only happens when we realize that the one that we have been searching for our whole lives has been close to us this whole time. So what does it look like as we talk about entering into the kingdom? What does it look like for us to navigate how to walk people through this choice? We'll skip a couple of slides here for the sake of time. There's going to be an idea that we have an invitation to faith and that how people are often undecided. And yet our call in this threshold is to know how to invite them into faith to follow Jesus. It's in order to show them the way because they may be looking and it may feel like them that following anything or having any sort of faith is like looking at a cheesecake menu and factory menu and feeling there's so many things that by the time you get to the last page, you forgot what was on the first page. And so you keep in perpetual seeking mode rather than crossing into faith mode. And we believe that if you are truly seeking truth and seeking God, you will find Jesus at the cross and at the resurrection. Because Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us that if God says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. The kind of seeking that allows for an outcast to climb up in a tree in order to see who Jesus is. That we hear that if you seek, he's, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you're seeking truth, you will find him. But we need to get to a point in which we help people walk through not just the learning phase and the seeking phase, but the crossing into faith phase, that threshold. So the question that we're going to ask is how can we become better at inviting people into the kingdom? How can we give um, a better invitation? And so uh, I have just a few minutes left. I'm going to go through these rather quickly um, to unpack different ways. Again, this content's in this book, and I'm going to um, tidy it. Not tidy it up. That sounds wrong. Excuse me. We're, I'm going to condense it a little bit. But here are some ways of inviting others into the kingdom. The first thing we could do is to be appropriately urgent. Appropriately urgent. So if you've never met someone before, and you have no relationship with them, you don't know anything, and you just walk up and they say, you're going to hell unless if you follow Jesus right now. Is there truth that people without Jesus go to hell? Yes. But is that the way to go about it? Or is that just going to keep people in a place where they never trust a Christian? In threshold one. So the idea is to be appropriately urgent. So thresholds one through four, they may take a long time. Establishing trust may take years. Helping people through being curious may take a long time. Them being open to change may take even longer. Them genuinely seeking, that may go relatively quickly because if they're at the point where they're seeking God, he will respond if we, they seek him with his own, our whole hearts. But we need to be appropriately urgent. In other words, if someone is ready to make that statement of faith, they may need someone like you just to directly ask, 
would you be willing to enter into God's kingdom? Would you be willing to give your life to Jesus, to trust him as your leader and someone who loves you? They may just need someone to nudge them beyond the seeking and into the following threshold. So be appropriately urgent. I shared the story before of when I um, had my, uh, when I had really what I thought was very bad gas when I was at UCSD during my freshman year, four weeks uh, into coming to uh, UC San Diego. And um, Steph and I, she, we're talking, we're dating, and she's like, you know, you should go get that checked out. And I'm like, that's probably fine. It's cafeteria food. And I just thought I wasn't feeling well. And it still wasn't good the next day. Uh, go to the, the health office at UC San Diego. They poke and prod and push, and they say, your appendix is going to explode. It's going to burst, so go get, go get that taken care of. Here's the hospital right down the street. At that point, that was an appropriately urgent thing for her, for Steph to say, you should go do that because Steph is always right. And so I'm like, yes, I should have done that in the beginning. But imagine if there's like, oh, your appendix is going to burst tonight. And I'm like, yeah, but I really wanted to watch this episode of Sports Center right now or something ridiculous, right? You're like, no, no, there's an appropriate amount of urgent when it's like, this has to be done now. There are times when people you know and love most are on the threshold of knowing and loving Christ, and they need someone to walk through them and to ask them the question, to, to nudge them and to guide them through what is a life-changing, eternity-changing, um, incredible experience. But unless if someone helps them through it and asks them to do it, they may never cross that threshold. Be appropriately urgent. Number two, the idea of be clear, but don't oversimplify. We don't want to paint the picture that when you pray a prayer for, to follow Jesus, that everything in your life is going to be perfect forever and always. And I think we can do that sometimes unintentionally. We could say, yes, your life will be better. Why? Because we know that life with God is better than life without God. We know that storms we face with Jesus is better to know that he's with us in the storm rather than facing that storm ourselves. But we may oversimplify because we're just like, well, it's like someone who's trying to sell you a, a better plan for your cable. And they say, well, you get an introductory rate that's better. And then they're going to triple charge you later on down the contract. We think, what do I need to do just to get this across the line and to get this decision made? But we may oversimplify and in so doing, lose the gravity and the weight of the decision they're making. So to be very clear, I'm going to use a... Uh, a description of the, of the gospel story that can be found in Andy Stanley and, and North Point's um, uh, starting point curriculum, which is a fantastic curriculum for seekers, starters, returners, people who are either first seeking about Jesus and don't believe everything yet. Hopefully they will, prayerfully they will. Some who have left the church and are returning or people who are just on their journey. They don't know where they are. They just want to find out more. This uh, idea through um, this book paints how the gospel can be play, uh, displayed very clearly. And it's something that we've heard before, but I want to reiterate a clear way for us to explain it when we are clear, but we don't want to oversimplify. Number one on the screen is that God loves us, that he created and formed us in his image, that we are loved by God, and that we are here to be fruitful and to multiply and, and to experience the goodness of his creation, that he finished creation and said it is good. It is very good. 
See, we were meant, we were created for relationship with God. But number two talks about how we blew it. And no, not you or me blew it in the original sense in the Garden of Eden, but through Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and the sin that has been created upon us is that we are imprinted with this desire to move away from God. We're imprinted with the desire to make ourselves the own, our own idols, our own gods, to decide what we think is right or wrong. And that sin then separates us from God because God is all holy, all powerful. And we on our own, within our sin, cannot bridge the gap. And if that was the end of the story, it would be a tragedy. Yet, the beauty of the gospel is that though we could not pay the price, Jesus paid it. He paid for it. That when we have a debt, creditors or people say, you owe, you pay. When Jesus looks at our sin, he says, you owe, I paid. The check is cleared. The ledger, there's no more debt. When we give our lives to Jesus, he paid the price. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin, and Jesus paid the price. But even there, people may understand those first three steps, and they still could not be into the, entering into the kingdom. Why? Well, you could understand the theological truth of something without allowing it to change your life. Zacchaeus could have understood that Jesus was a good teacher and that he could change lives, but until he experienced it and he encountered him, he didn't experience that salvation. Because the fourth step is that we must receive him. We must receive the gift of eternal life that is offered to us. We must pray and confess, believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and become saved. We can't stay on the outside of the threshold of five, uh, threshold five of being undecided because we need to recognize that we can understand all these things, but without receiving him, we could be left knowing that we knew the right things, but never letting God truly know us. We must receive him. So friends, being able to communicate that to those we love is important. There's a quotation from the book I would like to read. It says this, When our friends want into the kingdom, when they have sought and sought and seen Jesus, what they've always been looking for, they have a choice. Sell all and get it or walk away. To sell all is threshold five. Whereas the rich young ruler walked away, Zacchaeus, without being prompted, sold all because he was all in. Lastly, in the closing moments we have, we count the great cost and we celebrate with great joy. Following Jesus cost Zacchaeus. Not that he was the one that sacrificed and, and died for his sin, but it cost him something. For me, when I followed Jesus, my, I gave my life to the Lord September 20th, 2003. So I just celebrated my 18th uh, birthday of following the Lord just this past Monday. And when I become a Christian, before I became a Christian, uh, I had roommates that I had picked. And then I came back from summer vacation. And now I love Jesus. And they're like, something's different about you. Why can't you be the way that you were? What, 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 what changed? And I could explain it, but it, it, it was something that, harmed, or, or I shouldn't say harmed, they created some tension within those friendships. But I was able to 
continue to invest in them and, and be friends, but also to become, have a new community of others who loved Christ as well. So there's great cost and there's great joy. In fact, again, the book says it this way. It says, entering the kingdom is just like that. It's a thing of great joy and great cost. The cost is clear, but it's nothing compared with what is being gained. So we celebrate when our friends, those we know and love most, choose to know and love Christ. We celebrate with them, and we recognize, here, I'll help you walk through the cost of what it looks like, but this is a celebration. Luke 15, with the lost sheep, they lost the sheep. The sheep was found. There was a party. Luke 15, again, when it was a lost coin, the woman lost the coin. The coin was found. There was a party. And then with the lost son, the lost son was there. The lost son was found. There was a party. Celebration is part of rejoicing in the salvation of those we know and love. So as we close today, I'm gonna, I know I'm talking to two different types of people, not the type of people who say, I get the same food every time or I want to try something new in the restaurant, not, not that dichotomy. But I'm going to be talking to a group of people that some of you already know and love Jesus. Some of you are at a point where you are praying for people, and we've asked you to pray for people that you want them to know and love him as well. So as I'm speaking to you, I'm going to encourage you to, to utilize some of these tools, to, to pray for discernment, to know where your friends or family members are in this journey, and that you would be bold enough when the time comes to be appropriately urgent, to be able to be clear but not oversimplify, and to celebrate with them. So I'm, I'm going to talk to you right now in that moment to pray for those people and to be ready to share when necessary and how they need to hear from you. But I'm also going to talk to another group of people, a group of people who maybe you grew up in faith. But as you're looking at your life, you recognize that maybe you're trying to use God to pursue what you, quote, really want. You say, God, I value money, so bless me so I can have money. God, I value status, so bless me as I get this new role at work or whatever it is. God, I want to be looked upon others as being good, so bless you make my grades good so that I can do that. And are all of those things bad in of themselves? No. But if we pursue God to get something else, that something else is ultimately our God. So instead we pursue him wholeheartedly, knowing that we seek him first in all his righteousness, and he'll, he'll give us what we need. Not always what we want, but what we need. So for those of you who are in that place, maybe this is a day where you find yourselves at the threshold of that kingdom and you need to enter in again. You've wandered off. You could come back. And maybe there's some of you who have never entered. We would love to walk alongside you in that journey and to celebrate you with great joy because when people who are far from God come near to God, the angels rejoice, the church celebrates, and we recognize that it doesn't matter how much of an outcast we may feel like we are, God will welcome us into his family, into his home. And no matter how much we may think that we're searching everywhere, the one that we are seeking has already been seeking after you. Father, we thank you that you are here with us, Lord. And God, I pray for each and every person who hears my voice right now, Lord. I pray that, God, walls would be broken down.
I pray that we would have our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to what you have for us. God, I pray that for those of us who know and love people who have been seeking you, give us the boldness to speak the truth in love in order to nudge them across that threshold of faith. And then when we walk through that with them, may we rejoice and celebrate and come alongside them. God, I pray that we would never see people as projects, but that we would see them as people you know and love and that anyone we've ever fixed our eyes on, someone who's been created by you, that Jesus died for, and the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer to you. Lord, I pray that for some people right now who have never entered into your kingdom, may you work in their lives. May they feel their heart beating a little bit faster. Maybe they're feeling a little, um, palms are a little bit sweaty. Maybe they're just feeling it's like a little hot in here. Whatever it is, God, but may it be a clear sign to them that you are speaking to them in this moment. And God, may they cross into that threshold by receiving you. And may they tell a family member, a friend, or tell one of us on staff, I would love to hear. And God, may we rejoice with those who are coming into right relationship with you today across this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.